Welcome to Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Rachel Gottbaum. Today, we talk about narcolepsy. It's a lot more than a sleep disorder. You know, that state of kind of wake up in the morning and you're feeling groggy and you, that you could go back to bed. There was always kind of like this veil of fog around me, this heaviness, like a push to just lay down and sleep. I took her to the ER and she stayed asleep. When they put her in the hospital gown, she was asleep. When they did the CT scan, she was still asleep. And everything checked out completely normal, but the ER doctor and the nurse did look at me and they said, I don't know what's wrong with her, but I know this is not normal. This is Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. We'll be talking to a scientist who has spent his career trying to find answers to unravel the mystery of sleep. But first... My name is Ebony Lay. I am 41 years old, and I was diagnosed with narcolepsy with cataplexy at age 32. And it was a very rough, long road for me. I couldn't remember a time when I wasn't sleepy. Like it was almost growing up as a little kid, almost like a personality quirk of mine. And whenever I would have these periods of high emotion, I would just lose all muscle control, like I would fall or every muscle in my face would drop and my dad would call it making faces. I would have these super vivid dreams that would feel like I was awake and I would just be hearing or seeing these distressing things, but I wouldn't be able to move. I couldn't speak, I couldn't scream, I was just stuck there and I'm having no way of doing anything about it. My mom said that she would catch me laughing and falling over when I was six years old. And, you know, she would take me to my pediatrician because she was worried because I would be wanting to sleep all the time and, you know, I would have all these clumsy accidents. And so every now and then she would take me to a pediatrician and, you know, they check me over and they're like, oh, no, she's healthy. This is probably growing pains. And then when I became a teenager, then it was, you know, maybe she might have depression. So let's put her on an antidepressant and see if that helps. Or, you know, she's sleeping a lot more now. And then it was, well, she's a teenager. So, well, it was really a struggle with my family because if they would catch me trying to lay down somewhere, they would be like, if you nap too much, that's just going to make you feel more tired. You should get up and just walk around. And then every now and then I would just kind of hit a wall where even if I was trying to force myself to not nap, that I would just not be able to think straight, that stringing two words together felt impossible. And so I would just melt down and just start crying. They would just, you know, back away, leave me alone, and then I would be able to fall asleep. 
I have an identical twin sister and, you know, she wasn't sleepy like I was. My family, they were concerned, especially my mom. She would take me to my pediatrician and these doctors, they would look me over and, you know, they would find nothing wrong with me. She would say, well, what do they recommend? And basically they told her not to worry about it, that I'm a growing kid and it would probably resolve itself on its own. As I got older and my symptoms were more frequent to the point where I started to go to my doctor alone and then go, hey, today in class when I was walking through the hallway, I couldn't move my legs. Like, I just fell over. So the doctor tested my reflexes and he said, well, it's not your nervous system. And then I would bring up how tired I was. And again, it was that might be depression or, you know, just you have a lot on your plate. You're a busy girl. I never really talked about the troubles that I had at night with the vivid dreams and the sleep paralysis, because I didn't know that those things were things that you could tell a doctor, but just the tiredness alone. There was always kind of like this veil of fog around me. As the day goes on, it would be kind of like this heaviness, like a push to, you know, just lay down and sleep. I felt that it was either I was crazy or that they thought I was looking for an excuse not to do things. And so I shouldn't talk about it anymore. And so I felt defeated overall. Since I had good grades and I was a quiet kid, a lot of teachers left me alone. I was able to mask a lot of it. Like I had my resting posture to make it look, you know, like I'm just heavily studying and I'm not dozing off. I remember there was one time I was waking up after falling asleep from my desk and the kids around me were complaining about, hey, why isn't she getting a detention? She's she's asleep and he was like, she got 100 on her last test. She brought in her homework. Did you bring in your homework? You know, she's a good student. If she wants to sleep, I'm going to let her sleep. By the end of my freshman year of college, I was able to pass my classes, but just barely. I would just not have the energy to walk across campus, and so I would just stay in bed. I don't think I've ever come to terms with the fact that it was my narcolepsy that led me to drop out. I've always kind of put that onus on myself. I just ended up just entering the workforce, kind of jumped around a lot of temp jobs because, like, I would be a great employee, you know, highly productive and highly detailed and would turn in good work. But I would constantly struggle to get up in the morning and just get out the door. I would stay at that job until they would lose patience with me. And I did that until I was in my mid-20s, where I kind of landed a dream job where I got trained up from just being like a receptionist 
the guy, he saw some potential in me. And so he gave me like a telecom engineering apprenticeship and became a detail engineer in my own right. It gave me the flexibility to work around my sleepiness so that I could put out the work that needed to be done. In my 30s, it was desperation on my part because the part that I never talked about, the nighttime sleep paralysis with the terrifying dreams, I would wake up, be unable to move, and I would just see my front door open and then this dark intruder is just bursting into my apartment and is just kind of barreling towards me. Or there would be other times where I might hear something like my sister screaming my name or crying for help. There's that panic and fear that there's something horrible that's going on. As much as I felt like I needed to sleep, I was dreading it. I didn't want to sleep. I was just desperate for some kind of solution. And so I went to my doctor and was begging her to find something that I could just sleep through the night undisturbed. And she had a intern with her that day. And it was the intern who actually suggested that I go in for a sleep study. Even before the sleep study, the person who had just did the sleep questionnaire, she had just looked at all of my answers and had asked me if I thought that I might have narcolepsy. You know, when she had asked me that question, I had laughed because, you know, I kind of had the stereotypical view of what narcolepsy was, and I thought that wasn't possible because if I needed to stay awake, I could force myself to stay awake. And then, you know, she kind of explained the symptoms and that, you know, it was the first time that there was somebody who understood what I was going through. I got diagnosed with narcolepsy with cataplexy. We developed a treatment plan, which was a combination of medication and scheduled naps. There's no cure for it, but with the treatment, it was able to help reduce my symptoms. It doesn't feel like I have to fight to stay awake anymore. My name is Jessica Ashbridge, and my daughter Chloe Ashbridge was diagnosed with type 1 narcolepsy at four years old. Chloe is now seven. My daughter was perfectly normal, healthy, and then about a month after her fourth birthday, she took her first nap, which was out of the norm, and then that one nap grew into several naps a day where she would tell me she was going to play and she would actually go tuck herself in bed. She was sleeping about eight to nine times a day. And then all of a sudden she was running around playing and started tripping over herself and her tongue started hanging out. 
We had been going into the pediatrician trying to figure out why she was so sleepy. She had been tested for mono, thyroid disorder, iron deficiency, basic cancer screenings, and all of that came back negative. A couple of weeks later, I thought, well, maybe she has a UTI. And that's when I brought her in again. And a different pediatrician, she looked at me and said, I doubt it's a UTI. We could check for it. But do you think maybe she's been sexually assaulted or taking all these naps for attention. So I was kind of like offended because I don't feel like a four-year-old sleeps all day because they want attention or they've been sexually assaulted. No answers, everything was coming up, blood work wise, any little scans, fine, completely normal. I knew she wasn't normal. I was starting to lose a kid. Like she was, she was fading fast. Her cataplexy was really bad to the point where she couldn't even walk. Her tongue was out constantly. She looked like severely handicapped is the only way I can explain it. We were at a restaurant. She couldn't even eat. She just kept like going in and out of sleep. She couldn't talk. So she kind of just babbled. And I remember leaving the restaurant and we got in the car and I just started screaming at my husband like, she is dying and nobody is listening to me. Nobody cares that like there's something majorly wrong. So we actually walked into Primary Children's ER and a nurse came around the corner and she didn't even really ask me what was wrong. She just flagged her as a possible stroke. So we went back into a trauma bay and they just started every kind of test possible. I started just researching like why somebody would be sleepy and I stumbled across some YouTube videos of people with narcolepsy. The next morning, I met with 29 doctors at Primary Children's, and the one I talked to was the neurologist. So I asked, do you think that this could be narcolepsy? And he was really kind, but he looked at me and he said, I don't think so. I haven't seen this in 20 years of being here. It's pretty rare in young kids. Over four days, she was literally tested First seizures, like nocturnal seizures, spinal cancer, debilitating muscle disorders, botulism. I mean, everything you could possibly think of, she was tested and I was questioned for. And all those tests were coming back negative. The neurologist did come up to me the next morning and he came by himself and he said to me, I think that you're probably right. I think that type one narcolepsy would be the next possible diagnosis for her. He did send off her spinal fluid to the Mayo Clinic and then they were willing to get her into a sleep study because the spinal fluid came back that she did 100% have type one narcolepsy. She has more of a normal life. She does sleep two to three times a day and she has cataplexy still every day, but she's back to a more of a normal functioning kid. She does have to take naps at school to be able to function even though she doesn't like it. 
The school has been accommodating. They have a special room for her to sleep in. They give her extra time on tests. Cataplexy, she has learned how to fake laugh because if she relaxes, she collapses and is paralyzed. So she has learned how to fake laugh and try and be a normal kid. If she is doing something where somebody's like chasing her to play tag, she actually will yell at them instead of laugh because that will keep her upright. So she'll be like, don't chase me. So that is why she fake laughs. As a parent, you have to mourn the loss of a kid that you had because they are no longer that kid. They will never be that kid again. And then you're thrown right back into meeting a new kid and learning how to parent and take care of a totally new kid. This is Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Rachel Gottbaum. I'm joined by Dr. Emmanuel Mignot. He's Director of Sleep Sciences and Medicine at Stanford University. Dr. Mignot, tell us about narcolepsy. How do patients present? So basically, in narcolepsy, the brain doesn't work normally, so that sleep is erupting into wakefulness, and wakefulness is also mixed up with dreaming. So patients with narcolepsy are tired all the time. They just fall asleep everywhere. But also on top of that, when they fall asleep, they go straight into dreaming sleep, which is rapid eye movement sleep or REM sleep. And very often they would experience these symptoms where they're half awake and half in dreaming sleep. And since during dreaming you are paralyzed, we are all paralyzed during dreams. So otherwise we would enact your, our, our dreams. These patients sometimes get paralyzed like during REM sleep but at the same time, they're awake. So that can be very scary. It can happen in the middle of the night. They wake up and, ooh, they cannot move. That's called sleep paralysis. And then they also have a lot of symptoms where they are half dreaming and half awake. So very often, they may just start to see things that don't exist. Or when they fall asleep, you know, some monster will come at them. Often they wake up and they are absolutely sure that something has happened. I had many patients, for example, they are dreaming that someone is entering the house and they wake up and they're absolutely convinced that it has happened. But in fact, it was in their dreams. When they get emotionally excited, and that's the most specific sign of narcolepsy, it's called cataplexy. When they are happy about something, and it has to be usually a funny joke, and it's very specific. The joke has to be funny to the patient. If they find it funny, boom, suddenly they're paralyzed. And that's called cataplexy. So what is happening here biologically? Actually, narcolepsy is very simple. The cause of narcolepsy is just a little chemical that's missing in the brain. That's called orexin. And if you don't have it, you have narcolepsy. Narcolepsy is very similar to type 1 diabetes. You know, when you don't have insulin and you need to take these insulin shots. Here, you don't have orexin. You cannot stay awake. You cannot control your dreams. And you have narcolepsy. It's an autoimmune disease. So the immune system kind of attacks the brains that cells that produce orexin. And once they are not there anymore, you have narcolepsy. And the trigger, in fact, is the flu. Amazingly, we found out that if you get the wrong flu at the wrong moment, then the immune system starts to attack the flu and somehow make a mistake. It starts to confuse the flu with the cells that produce orexin in the brain. You think they are infected, whereas they're not infected, and then it kills them, and then you have narcolepsy. 
what did we understand and what did you discover and how did you discover that that led to this study and these new medications that have this potential to reverse the symptoms of this disease? Basically, when I came to the U.S. from France, I I was very interested in narcolepsy. I thought that was maybe a key to understanding sleep in general because, you know, this very odd disease where people have the brain disorganized and sleep doesn't work. And they had dogs with narcolepsy. Not only people can have narcolepsy, but also dogs. In fact, I have a dog with narcolepsy myself, uh, Watson. Uh, I I have to show it to to you. One second. Hello, Watson. He's my lab assistant, you know? (laughs) You see, he's happy, you know? Yeah, he's very cute. He's a chihuahua. And every time he gets excited, boom, he collapses. The same way as patients with narcolepsy, when they get a good joke, you know, they collapse. For him, it's more like food or having a good time, you know, seeing me. Then he gets really excited and then he gets paralyzed. And also, of course, he sleeps all the time. But of course, for a narcoleptic dog, it's not as much of a problem as a patient. So we had these dogs with narcolepsy. But unlike humans, what was very different is it was purely genetic. So if you bred two dogs with narcolepsy, they all had narcolepsy. So I spent 10 years of my life tracking these families of narcoleptic dogs to try to find a gene that caused narcolepsy. And when we discovered it was a mutation in a receptor for this chemical called orexin, which people believe at the time was more involved in appetite, but really uh, it it is a chemical that's involved in sleep. So next thing we did is we looked at human patients and we knew it was different because in human patients, it's not a genetic disease. As I mentioned, it's an autoimmune disease. So we looked if the orexin itself was missing, and we discovered that the orexin itself was not present in the brain of patients with narcolepsy. So the cause was very simple. It's just a lack of this orexin chemical, and it all came down to the dogs. It seems narcolepsy has been underdiagnosed. Why is that? When I first started to work on narcolepsy, you know, I had seen the papers and were saying it was about one person for 2,000. So it was not very rare, but not like super common. It's one of these medium frequency disorder. But, you know, a lot of the neurologists were saying, oh, I have never seen a narcoleptic. You know, it's very rare. But I think, unfortunately, it was not diagnosed. And the reason it was not diagnosed was because the patients, I think, did not often come to the doctors explaining their symptoms. You know, being sleepy is not always believed to be a disease. You know, people may say, oh, there's sometimes that's the way I am a little bit. And then the doctors would not recognize it and then pass it on to a neurologist. And then I think when it was passed to a neurologist, they were seeing so few that generally they would not even diagnose it. So unfortunately, you know, they were all missed. And I started to see children with narcolepsy. Before, I was always seeing adults and they had started the disease 20 years before. They just had narcolepsy all their life. Often they didn't even remember when it started. You know, as I said, oh, I've always been tired. And in children, it's a very different uh, picture. They suddenly start narcolepsy by becoming usually very fat very quickly. They gain a lot of weight. And then they are very affected. They sleep all the time and they're almost paralyzed. They have even their mouth gets open 
and then the tongue protrudes because they have muscle weakness in their jaw. And it's really dramatic. And, and often they have to stop going to school. And now we know that 50% of the, of the patients start narcolepsy in childhood, you know, before the age of 18. So they were all missed. So that's the first thing. The second thing is we used to treat narcolepsy with stimulants like amphetamines and antidepressants. Why? Because the antidepressants, they remove dreaming. You know, they somehow improve the abnormal dream aspect. And then the stimulants, I mean, we know that they keep you awake. But, you know, when you take amphetamines, you're often kind of overexcited. It keeps you awake, but in a robotic way. You know, you're not like completely normal. In fact, if you use too high dose, people can become paranoid. You know, they can become hypersensitive to everything that's happening. So it definitely was not an ideal treatment. And then a new drug came about that was called sodium oxybate. And somehow this drug was putting people to sleep, but also in very strong sleep. Instead of being an anesthetic agent that makes your EEG flat, it would actually produce this big wave like if you are sleeping very intensely. Also, it was a very controversial drug because it was also used occasionally as a day trip drug. And we discovered this drug was really effective and it really changed a lot of the life of many narcoleptics. It's not ideal. It's not treating the cause of the disease, but let's say that was a step up, you know. And then, of course, the ideal, what everyone has been waiting for, the holy grail, is replacing what's really missing because that's the cause of the problem, the orexin. Tell us about your study and what you found. So the study was very simple. You had to stop all your medications. And then you were on a placebo or you were on different active dose of this particular drug called TAC-994, an orexin agonist. And I had like eight patients in the clinical trials. And it just happened that my eight patients out of the hundreds were all on the active drug. I could see immediately that none were on placebo because it was fairly obvious. And the difference with amphetamine is they were not like overstimulated or, or like robotics. They felt awake, but calm. And I could see that all of them were transformed. I mean, it was a, a big difference. Even the patients that were well-treated by the conventional drug, because, you know, sometimes we bring them to 80% normal, but they are not normal. They're still kind of much more sleepy. They have trouble when they have a lot of emotion. It's never perfect, you know. But with this drug... We could see the patients, even their personality will change a little bit. You know, their eyes, I mean, I never realized, but their eyes were more open. So it was fundamentally different from anything we have tried. And we have a test to test how severe is narcolepsy. Basically, we put a narcoleptic patient in a room and we ask them to sit down and do nothing. It's unbearable. A patient with narcolepsy cannot stay more than three minutes, five minutes. I mean doing nothing. They can't watch TV, they can't read, they can't. They just have to try to stay awake. It's impossible. They just like, bath, fall asleep immediately. And with all the treatment we had, everything else, we could raise that to about 10 minutes, you know. And this class of drug, because we also used an, another one was tried, they could stay awake 40 minutes, the length of the test, like a normal person. In fact, all the patients who tried this medication, they wanted to stay on this medication. They didn't want to, <laughs> they didn't want to switch back to their old medication. But here, what was very unfortunate is a liver side effect occurred. I mean, three patients had a liver inflammation. And for that reason, the drug had to be stopped. Uh, of course, it was extremely devastating because 
a lot of patients were doing very well and, and just for them to have to stop the treatment was really a, a disaster. So that's why it, it ended up being more of a proof of concept that it's an incredible, the effective mode of action, but really not the ideal drugs. And now I think a new drug that will not have that side effect is, is being tried. Do all patients with narcolepsy lack orexin? Aren't there some patients that this isn't the case and it may not help them? That's an excellent question. Of course, there's two types of narcolepsy. There's a narcolepsy, what we call type 1, a little bit like diabetes type 1, where they don't have insulin. But there are also other people who are tired and have some of the symptoms of narcolepsy. Generally, they don't have the cataplexy, like getting emotionally excited and getting paralyzed. And these patients have normal orexin. So their problem is not due to a lack of orexin. So you may wonder, is the drug going to help? In fact, it does as well. We know for sure that the drug works better in patients with no orexin. Of course, it's replacing something that they lack. And in contrast, for the people who have orexin that are tired for other reasons, you often need a, a higher dose, about three times higher to get the same kind of effect, but it still works. We know that the cause of ADHD or, or, or the cause of being tired is not a lack of dopamine, and yet we give drugs that increase dopamine and it helps. So there's hundreds of cases where we treat symptomatically with the drugs. So here, you know, basically the orexin agonist could be used as a treatment for narcolepsy type 2, and people were tired for other reasons by increasing the orexin. So in your view, what needs to happen moving forward? So we know that you know, about one person in four has a sleep problem. And it's clear that these drugs that can help you to stay awake could have a lot more applications than just narcolepsy type 1. For example, in the field of depression, you know, there's clearly a subtype of patients who are very, very tired and sleepy. And we don't really understand why. And I think some of these patients could benefit a lot from a little bit of orexin. We have to discover where it's going to be the most effective. So there is no free lunch in pharmacology or anything. That's the nature of taking any active treatment. So we, of course, have to understand the risk of orexin as well. And so I think the reasonable thing to do is to start with these patients with narcolepsy type 1, with narcolepsy type 2, try to really understand how it's happening, and then probably extend it to, to other people which may be more difficult, like depression, etc. If you're finding that half of your narcolepsy patients had a misdiagnosis for years in childhood, what do clinicians need to know? So I feel strongly that we should educate more the, the pediatricians, you know, because in kids, it really looks different. And I think often they are not diagnosed when they are kids. We, we need to definitely have the patients, you know, communicate the fact that sleep is a problem and it, it can be a disease to be sleeping, that it's just not normal, you know? And the second thing I think that's important is for the doctors to realize it, especially pediatrician, and take it seriously. Thank you so very much for joining us. It was a real pleasure. Dr. Emmanuel Mignot is director of the Center for Sleep Sciences and Medicine at Stanford University.
This is Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. Most states now mandate that schools hold active shooter drills to prepare students. But are these drills actually helping or hurting? Your brain does not know the difference between a drill and an active shooter in your building. The sounds are scary. There's banging, there's yelling, there's screaming. There are some drills where people are dressed in combat outfits and they're pointing guns at people and there's blood on their clothing and they really go all out. But this is school. School should be a safe space. We have taken that away. That's next time on Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Rachel Gottbaum.